for real stories on how global business gets done. This is Supply Chain Unfiltered, presented by the Institute for Supply Management. So this morning, I started my day like I usually do, especially, you know, Monday through Friday. Uh, and I'm looking for different media sources and trying to get information on, you know, where are we at? Where's the economy at? What's newsworthy today? What should I be mindful of and keep watch for and um, let everyone else know? So today happened to, uh, I, I happened to run across four different analysts that were giving their opinions on um, oil and, and energy and that, oh, we should all be investing in, in oil and energy stocks because uh, supply is going to be constrained. And, oh, they said, as a matter of fact, uh, diesel pricing month to month uh, went up 40 cents a gallon. And, you know, so my ears perked up because I knew what we'd be chatting about today on Supply Chain Unfiltered. Hi, I'm Melanie Stern for ISM in another episode of our podcast. And uh, with us to help dive into diesel pricing and all the other news affecting logistics, I have Jenny van der Zanden of Breakthrough, Chief Operating Officer for the company. Thanks so much for being here, Jenny. Thanks for having me. I can't uh, love a topic around energy and fuel, and there's so much to talk about. So yes, while you see a lot of analyst reports, uh, it can be a bit overwhelming yeah. to comb through the details. Um, but in, in total, there's just a lot happening on the energy front right now. So um, so let's start off with something, I don't want to say easy, but uh, I'll say basic uh, from your perspective on the business itself, is what what does benchmark pricing look like right now? And maybe what what do you anticipate changing, if anything? So it's an interesting question because it feels like the answer should be one number. And the reality <laughs> is it's still a lot more complex than that. Yeah. Um, but just start simple just to give you a baseline price. Uh, about 425 is the retail price of diesel right now across the U.S. Um, and we say retail price of diesel is that a good reflection of what the baseline is? Well, that depends. Uh, you know, retail is, is anybody driving up to the station? Um, when mm -hmm. people think about transportation fuel, typically it's not bought at full retail, it's bought at a market price um, that's cost-based. Um, so if you think about that, that price is more around $4 a gallon um, because it doesn't really connect with the retail market, typically significantly lower. Um, so when you look at that, what's the baseline price? Um, you know, a very simple answer can get complex. Uh, and then I think we all know the U.S., uh, it depends where you're at. Um, there's not one price across the U.S. Uh, it goes as high as California at 525 uh, and as low as, you know, it can be 370. Uh, so if you can imagine kind of what's the price of diesel, there's a lot that goes into that answer. Okay. And I, I'm going to kind of jump across the board on uh, uh, topics related to this. Uh, so in, indulge me and bear with me at the same time. Uh, so, as we've seen some shifts with manufacturers and then um, how they run their logistics and getting product across the country and integrating m manufacturing in Mexico, um, is that affecting benchmark pricing at all? not impacting as much around the fuel side, but it is impacting transportation line haul rates. Okay. Um, when you look at what's happening in transportation in total, transportation volumes are down 
pretty much across every geography, except when you're looking at shipments coming out of that, that region from Texas to Arizona. There you're actually seeing the only pockets of growth for year-on-year shipments. And is that because of Mexico or, or some, other, some other reason behind it? portion of it that's due to the the amount of shift in manufacturing heading to Mexico. But the other factor that's influencing it is the amount of freight that's coming in through different ports. Um, You know, it was always all this freight was brought in through the West Coast. And the reality is, is like the challenges, the supply chain has felt more more shippers have used to the East Coast ports. Um, and that includes some of the ports of Houston. So you're seeing that that transition really happen because of the ports and the manufacturing changes. But all all the same impact of supply chain okay. that they're looking for. And I know, I don't know if you caught this, uh, I believe it was yesterday, um, U.S. President Joe Biden is basically putting a ban on, like a formal ban on businesses um, conducting themselves in China, um, depending on the type of business, I guess, as the means to help uh, mitigate risks regarding cybersecurity, military breaches, that sort of thing. But do you think that will kind of, um, you know, kind of give the antenna um, of putting it up higher for other businesses to be more mindful of doing business in China, even though there was already a slight shifting away from China? Uh, at the same time, I, I'm hearing conversations in the last few months. Well, on one hand, yeah, we're switching our supply chains away. But, you know, on the other hand, yeah, we're going to kind of keep keep it there a little bit. So now, now what? What, what should businesses be doing, and then how will that further affect uh, logistics? There's actually an interesting report, and it goes, and it looks at shipping volumes from 2019 to 2022, specifically around imports. Uh, and I found it fascinating because you always thought the biggest number of imports and the biggest growth was always from China. Um, but in 2019 to 2022, the highest areas of growth um Actually, Mexico and Canada both grew faster than China. Um, I think Vietnam was the number one spot. But I was surprised to see that actually kind of the growth rate in China had slowed down. And actually, we were seeing our North America counterparts grow more. Um, So I think that contributes a little bit to the question you just asked about the Mexico changes in terms of volume and manufacturing, but actually seeing more dependence on North American countries um, for us to import our goods seeing that grow is actually a little bit a bit surprising. Now, I think here what you're seeing in the shift away from China is this that trajectory was already set in motion. If anything, it could accelerate it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people already saw and knew that the dependence in any area so directly, uh, the influence they felt over the last couple of years, uh, they needed to make some changes. Uh, and so I do think that diversification has already started uh, and some things like this can help accelerate or help push maybe, uh, you know, a couple of other organizations in areas that they might not have gone before. And are you um, are you noting any specific challenges um, logistics companies are facing because of onshoring and nearshoring that maybe wasn't anticipated? I think it changes whole networks. So when you start changing something that was maybe imported and is now manufactured in the U.S., 
organizations may not have ever sourced from the new location where you're building a manufacturing facility. They might not have the same levels of capacity planned. Um, and then inflows and outflows all change. And so I think, you know, when all these changes are happening and they're happening at a macro level, it requires new information. You can't just use the same strategy you used last year and the year before that and the same carriers you used for the last 20 years. Mm. Uh, it requires supply chains really to think about the choices they're making, leverage new data, um, and start to think about what impacts it has and how you might need to seek new partners, new carriers, uh, new lanes to source and, and the cost impacts those are going to have. Uh, so I think it does kind of shake things up a bit. Um, it's not just about how much volume is on one lane, um, but fundamentally, do you have the right structure and strategy to source? So let, let's focus a little bit on the, the structure, if you will. So are there things that companies should really more strongly consider, perhaps more than ever before, in order to enhance security measures? Um, because there's a lot of theft, there's a lot of issues, uh, identity theft issues across logistics. Um, what, what do you find companies um, are doing to assist in those endeavors, or is there still some pullback in thinking, you know, well, we don't really need to focus or worry about that until that happens? I think it, it depends a little bit on the the organization and their level of maturity of their own cyber controls that they have in place. So I think you probably see a really wide array of how people are approaching it. You know, I think the organizations that have strong cyber, that have strong, um, you know, any PII information, personally identifiable information that have the structure and the process around it, they're going to keep getting stronger. And it's creating an even bigger divide from those that maybe haven't started that journey. Um, so here, I think, you know, larger Fortune 500 companies are going to have different controls than some of the smaller organizations. Um, and I do think, like, things are going to keep changing. you got to keep investing in that, regardless of what business you're in. That's not specific to transportation. Mm -hmm. It really is something organizationally that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, I do think transportation sits in a unique spot because of the the way that goods are moved and the the number of parties that it transfers in between. Um, but I think the reality is we're, we're all susceptible to that. And so organizations that are good stewards and are thinking about longevity are, are really focused in this area. And what, let's kind of circle back to um, energy use. So there's lots of, uh, lots of new technologies coming about. We've got EV fleets. Um, yeah, let's stay right there for a second. So EV fleets, how likely will those be integrated into the industry sooner than later, or is it still cost prohibitive? What do you think? I think there's some different applications. So if you're looking at Class A transportation and long-haul transportation, you know, I don't think we're quite there yet to do that at scale. Um, you know, with especially from a cost perspective, I think you're going to start seeing reality of like news reports, you're going to start seeing some trucks, and I think you're going to start seeing some adoption here, um, and some early movers um, with with equipment. Now that equipment, it, it's going to cost more than diesel, um, it's going to have likely some subsidies and some regulatory areas where that help influence the use of it. 
I think those are going to be great starts in the journey, but I do think there needs to be more production of equipment and more infrastructure built to support that for a class eight vehicle. Um, you know, I think you're going to see in some of the earlier classes where they may be returned to uh, a home base, they're um, used in more centralized routes, um, maybe more in, in city driving, um, where you're going to see those start to be used. But from a class eight vehicle perspective, you know, there's still quite a bit of infrastructure and development that needs to happen to build them out. And as these early fleet models become available, um, there's a list of shippers who want to start using this technology, is want to start learning and want to start engaging it in their, their networks. Hmm. And how about biofuels? Biofuels, um, you know, there's actually a lot happening with biofuels today. So in California, if you actually look at distribution of energy use, um, if you look at more broadly at biofuels being biodiesel, renewable diesel, they actually use more than 40% of their overall fuels or actually some level of bio or alternative. Um, so if you think like small in California, it's actually quite significant. Um, and they've, they've, have a lot of measures in place to incentivize it or maybe uh, decentivize diesel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody can have a different perspective on that, if that's good, if how that drives change, how that influences behavior. Uh, but the reality is they're used quite a bit. Um, you know, I think biofuels can be a great way to make progress towards a more sustainable future. Uh, oftentimes, it's an incremental improvement. It's kind of being termed like a, a bridge fuel um, to get us to the next spot mm -hmm. as, as we go through an energy transition. Um, you know, like renewable diesel is a great spot where, you know, you really don't need new equipment, huge sustainability benefits and can be pretty cost competitive. Um, biodiesel blending is a great option. Uh, there are some some limitations with that. You can't run on a 100% biodiesel um, mm -hmm. because it can cause some engine problems. Um, but in total, I think it's a great step forward um, and can be a kind of a cost, a relatively cost engaged way to to begin to to uh, to make a sustainable impact. And um, if you consider the increased business in North America because of the shift toward Mexico. Uh, Let's say I was a manufacturer and I brought some of my business into Mexico, but then the existing contracts I was using um, for distribution, for example, maybe didn't focus on language specific to Mexico. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe I need to make some modifi modifications to the existing contracts. Uh, how would you suggest I go about that. Um, I don't need to scrap the entire contract, but what kind of language would you advise um, should be added to a logistics contract um, to, you know, ease any concerns or risks that come about because of the shift towards Mexico? I do think here there's some interesting interesting tidbits that you bring up in that conversation. You know, one, I think there's a lot of carriers that only operate inside the U.S. So, you know, do they have the authority to operate in Mexico mm -hmm. is a question you'll want to ask before you start thinking about contracts. Um, you know, where do you want that contract to have governing authority? 
Um, you know, do you want to have that domiciled in, in Mexico or do you want to have that, where do you want that authority to be governed um, will be a really important question. And then do you want to manage those operations inside of Mexico or do you want to work with a carrier who's going to manage that relationship for you? Um, so I think you have, you know, before you you dive down into that contract level, there's some operational authority questions that need to be sorted out uh, and some strategic questions about where and when you want to invest in relationships um, that need to be to be answered too. Um, so I do think there's there's some things around authority. There's some things around you know risk, theft, um, some terms around that that need to be sorted out at a high level before you dive into those contractual details. And if if in fact we do end up keeping more of a pulse on doing business with China than <laughs> I'll say they're advising in the last twenty four hours. Um, if we have to revisit contract language, I want to bring that back around again, knowing what we know or what we're being told about doing business in China and the risks therein, uh, any, any language points you can think of, you know, regarding logistics and how that, how we're affected by doing business in China? From a domestic transportation standpoint, I don't see a lot of contractual considerations. I think what's important is having open communication about changes in your network with your carrier base. You know, contracts already, you know, there's volumes ebb and flow today as it is, thinking even just within the domestic transportation realm, because you know, you might lose a customer and that volume goes away. You might change your supplier and that volume shifts. So I do think, you know, that shipper carrier relationship is used to some level of, of change inside of their contract on um, their contracts. But what helps create a more effective relationship here is communicating when you're going to have changes, the impacts of those change. So carriers can be prepared to adapt their networks over time. Um, and then shippers can get the capacity that they need to move their products to market. So I think here, I don't think there's contractual changes that are needed to, to adjust to this market, but I do think establishing great communication with your carriers um, in open communication as things change is important, whether that's due to changes in, you know, where you're sourcing your freight, um, you know, whether that's going to come in through a port, whether that's going to be domestic, whether that's going to come from Mexico, um, or if that's going to be an import coming in, in from Canada. Uh, the reality is, is having um, open and clear communication will always benefit all parties. And uh, with with the mission of being more transparent, having greater visibility end to end, uh, and then having concerns over sourcing. So for, for example, um, the EU is implementing their new deforestation laws that have to do with heavily, you know, the procurement of um, raw materials, agriculture from various places across the world. And they're looking for transparency, visibility, and documentation for that end. And if we look to the EU as, okay, they're, they're doing this, and what's North America going to do? Are we going to follow in some fashion at some point? And how do you ever really get the visibility that we're all looking for and hope, hope to have? Um, and to comply 
um, related to ESG, for example. How is that something we can realistically get to? What do you think? You know, I think technology has enabled more visibility and transparency to those questions. But I think this, you know, while this is a new um, new piece of legislation, you know, these changes have been set in motion for a long time. You know, there have been new embargoes, new trade rules, new trade um, laws. I think the transparency in supply chain has been a topic for a long time. Um, and I think the more and more transparency that organizations can can get access to and give, um, you know, the better supply chains it creates, um, the more effective supply chains it creates. Um, so I think this is going to be a topic that continues. And I think it will it will change where things are sourced. It will continue to evolve. But again, I think those patterns are already set in motion. Those questions are asked. And what we should do is plan that things are going to change and make sure our strategies are adaptable, flexible, um, and agile enough to move at the pace that we need to move. Because um, I think what's changing is, is the pace of change is actually getting faster and faster. Um, and the ability to respond to those change, we can't be reactive. Um, we saw what being reactive did um, you know, through COVID, and we need to be proactive, we need to be agile, and we're going to need to move because we know things will move and change. And and as new regulations come to bear and, and new legislation or, or new demands from consumers too. Yeah. So speaking of that, um, I had heard that, you know, initially, you know, there were concerns over uh, consumer demand dropping um, towards Christmas, you know, reducing you know, what would be normally expected on uh, spending um, and i.e. profits, right? But but then, uh, you know, I don't know how these forecasters do what they do, but I just recently heard, no, we're not, we're not anticipating any change from last year. Um, is that, is that surprising to you? Um, do you, does that sound, you know, like it's in alignment or <laughs> go find someone else to listen to? <laughs> No, um, I bring up an interesting topic, and I, I, you know, I, I, I haven't heard the same report that you did, but what I, I have seen is like we were overstocked for a long time, and I think there was a lot of excess inventory, and I think a lot of that inventory has come to a position where if you actually look at some more of the inventory ratios, you actually see like okay, now we're going to be in the position of having needing to move more goods and build some of that, not necessarily build the inventory, but more in a stable place. And so, you know, you kind of saw inventories being depleted and less and less demand for freight because we were just working through the inventory. Right. And now that that levels at a more acceptable place, heading into the holiday season, you know, you, you're going to see some different behaviors because, you know, the challenge wasn't that people wasn't, it was this inventory amount that surplus that actually created some of these, these slowdowns and freight trends. And so, if if I have concerns over uh, the cost of fuel, right, and I'm trying to stay as efficient as I can, if I'm looking to align with a logistics company to move my product, uh, what areas should I be concerned about or what should I look for to enhance both cost and time efficiencies? Yeah. Um so I, th I think about it between a shipper and and really a, a manufacturer and a, a customer. Um, the best things to reduce cost are going to be having a plan 
um, you know, shipments that come in at the last minute um, give little time to plan and are often very reactive. So they come at a typically a premium. Now in today's market, that spot market might be favorable and you might actually not have that same premium, but that's that's going to change. Um, so how do you make sure you're, you're having enough time for planning shipments? Um, you are not moving partial shipments. Um, you know, any time that you can fill the full load of a truck, um, you're going to have the most efficient per unit basis. Uh, so making sure that, that that those ordering patterns are relatively balanced for your needs. Um, but I think the other thing is a lot of times, you know, when people are doing interplant movements or transfers, um, they'll look to leverage as much intermodal as they can. Um, but I think there's been this, this um, hesitancy to do that on customer shipments because of uh, reliability of service. Uh, if you can move to intermodal, it presents some pretty significant cost savings on a per mile basis. Um, it can be 75 cents a mile with line haul alone. Um, and you can pick up an extra 25 cents a mile with fuel. So when you hmm. think about like, how do you reduce cost? Um, there's some very efficient modes that can be leveraged as long as you keep open communication, expectations, um, and do as much forward planning as possible. Uh and uh, I want to circle back to these four wonderful analysts <laughs> I caught this morning. And they were all giving their opinion on whether we are having a recession at some point, if it's going to be hard and long, if it's going to be a soft landing. And there was actually one, one gentleman that said, oh, you know, forget the recession stuff. We're moving into a depression. And then there was another another gentleman that suggested that we are we are just duplicating the roaring twenties from a hundred years ago, which did not make me feel that great because we knew what happened after the roaring twenties. But yes, yes. so so uh, with all these opinions out there, how would you suggest a company really plan for? any unknowns to come because then you don't even do you know what an unknown is that the term unknown means you don't know but then you've got the what if scenario so so how do you how do you manage that so i think you know in transportation a lot of times you're you're downstream from the amount of goods that somebody is purchasing um, you're downstream from how people are looking at their ordering patterns or their, their habits so i think having a really collaborative plan in transportation becomes really important you know, if you try to build your plan with transportation alone, you're making assumptions and you don't know what assumptions somebody else has made if right. your plans align. Um, so I do think from a transportation perspective, it's important to make sure you're you're working with counterparts upstream, downstream, interacting with your customers to understand and, and, and what those influences are and that your organization's position is aligned to how you're planning and forecasting. Then I, you know, I think as a transportation leader, there's a lot that you can do to be able to think about, okay, what are my, what are my scenarios that I should plan for? You know, what happens if I have 10% more volume? Does anything in my network fail? What happens if I don't have, you know, if I have 10% less volume? Um, and be able to build out those extremes so that as the dynamics change, and they will, because of the, all the factors that you mentioned, there's so many different perspectives, you at least know where and how you have those, those kind of breaking points or those inefficiencies so you can anticipate when they're going to happen. Um, so I think here, you know, the future may be unknowable, but the scenarios are knowable. Right. And when you can plan for those scenarios that are within some sort of a reach, you can actually anticipate, prepare, 
and be ready for anything. Yeah, definitely supports resiliency. That's for sure. We can all use a little more of that any day of the week, right? Yes. And don't rely on pure grit. Resilience is a a beautiful (laughs) thing. Pure grit will wear you down. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jenny Vanderzanden of Breakthrough. Really appreciate your insights and keeping me calm on this subject. Uh, and I do plan on having more guests um, to discuss the nature of logistics um, through the supply chain. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, Jenny. I hope you do as well. Thank I plan you for having on me. It. I plan on it. And to uh, check out other podcasts, you can always find them right here, Supply Chain Unfiltered. Uh, just simply head to the ismworld.org. That's our website under news and publications to check out all of our episodes. I'm Melanie Stern for ISM, Supply Chain Unfiltered.